is U.S. deterrence in Asia failing? Why are people saying that it might be? And what do you think about that? Yeah, um, it's good to it's good to be here. By the way, thank you all who I can't see for uh, watching. I um, I, I think there, there's uh, a couple uh, tiers of Asian states. There's Taiwan, and then there's everybody else. And uh, Taiwan uh, has serious problems when it comes to uh, its defensibility and uh, the believability even of U.S. deterrent threats. And there's everybody else who are uh, quite safe. And uh, so there's, you know, there's a general kind of um, mood uh, in Washington uh, as reflected in articles by uh, people like John Mearsheimer even uh, and uh, Michelle Flournoy in a less sophisticated uh, academic way uh, who make the argument that U.S. deterrence is failing because of China's rise, because of its ability, especially to hit U.S. ships uh, and uh, aircraft with accurate missiles. And uh, I wrote an article uh, a few years ago with Ania Gyoza, who worked here at Defense Priorities, and with Eugene Galtz, a professor at Notre Dame, called Defensive Defense. Uh, about a, a better way of defending allies, which really made the argument that uh, we can uh, defend allies at much lower cost and with much lower risk uh, in terms of getting into a security dilemma with China and spending lots of money that we don't need to uh, if we adopt this approach, which involves um, not planning to hit all these Chinese uh, military forces in China in the event of a war, which we view as overly escalatory and dangerous, but rather uh, pulling U.S. forces back physically uh, from the China's coast, where we're in a sort of a bubble of A2AD systems, where its radars can uh, accurately track U.S. Uh, forces and uh, Q missiles that can hit us and fight from longer range and encourage our allies to develop the same kind of A2AD systems that uh, the Chinese uh, have. And it's not that our allies don't do this. It's not that they don't have uh, area denial anti-access capability or uh, anti-access area denial capability A2AD. They do, uh, but they should do way more of it. Taiwan in particular should invest way more, we argue, in mobile anti-ship missiles, mobile because it's harder to target that way. Uh, and uh, they, they produce them themselves. And we, we say, look, we should give, instead of a, a lot of the military spending we have, we should just give Taiwan money if necessary to, uh, it would be a better investment for us to just buy these systems. And we think US allies should stop impersonating the United States in the sense of trying to build, and Taiwan's not an ally, I should say, but uh, countries like Taiwan uh, that rely on US defenses and actual treaty allies like Japan, uh, and the Philippines uh, should build uh, systems that make it easier for them uh, at lower cost to defend against an amphibious assault. So summing it up, the United States has a uh, status quo, uh, pro-status quo uh, strategy in Asia. We defend the territorial status quo. That's a, a defensive strategy, but we, we now serve that defensive strategy with offensive doctrine. We want to have a defensive doctrine to serve uh, our defensive strategy and rely more on our allies to develop their own uh, capabilities to defend themselves and be a more distant offshore balancer. Awesome. Um, you also mentioned a lot the uh, Taiwan specifically, and I just wanted to um, follow up on that with the with the question of like, first of all, I guess it might be a two parter. Is 
Taiwan really a defensible like for from their own position or is it a defensible place? And second of all, how badly do they like how badly do they have to want it for it to be something that's uh, strongly defensible? Because I mean that has to be a question, right? Is Taiwan themselves extremely dedicated to their own uh, independence to um, from China? Yeah. Well, let me. For, I, I, something I should add, I guess, is that in, you know, you know, I'm not just basing my answers on my own writing. I'm basing them on stuff that people here at Defense Priorities are doing. Lyle Goldstein is our new director of um, Asian engagement, we call it, and he's writing a series of papers that I'm the editor of, basically on uh, the defensibility or Taiwan. And uh, ultimately, he'll be talking about the defensibility of Japan, which is a much better, much more defensible. Um, and we have a paper by a guy named Mike Sweeney that's about the military utility of uh, Taiwan to China in the event that they conquer it. What good will it do them? He says a little, but not that much. Uh, and we even have another paper about uh, by a guy named Peter Harris about the uh, non sort of non-military ways to deter an invasion of Taiwan. So I, I just wanted to mention all that. But uh, yeah, I, you know, a lot depends on the will to fight in Taiwan. And I don't think that should be taken for granted. I mean, you know, it. one thing is I, I'm generally uh, not in the habit of telling countries how much to spend on defense. I generally think the United States should do less to defend its allies. And then they uh, should make their own decisions about how much to spend uh, on on defense, but you know Taiwan's an exception where I think uh, where its defense spending as a percentage of GDP, which I think is about two point five percent, is seems woefully inadequate given the threat it faces, growing threat it faces from China, and you know it seems to me they should be more like Israel, six seven percent or ten percent even uh, would make sense if they're really that committed to their. Independence and, and their um, their politics are not that straightforward though, and I think some of it reflects um, ambivalence in the population about how they their relationship with China they want to have. It's it's not not everyone there is a, is a uh, Taiwanese nationalist who doesn't want to be part of China, and uh, there's also unclear will to fight. So um, you know a lot of you know we recommend that Taiwanese do all this stuff build better AD systems, you know, pave a lot of the island basically so that it's a highway that they could have uh, mobile missiles on, but uh, maybe they don't want to do that. And, you know, they have nice beaches and uh, waterfront properties um, that they could put a bunch of defenses on, but uh, for sort of aesthetic and environmental reasons, they might not want to do that. You know, and that's their choice. But then it's sort of an odd situation where the United States is stuck being a more adamant defender of Taiwan than in some ways uh, the Taiwanese are. So, uh, yeah, I think it's an open question uh, how much they want to fight. But um, if the, they're in a, they have one big advantage, which is that they're an island and they're not it's not a small island. I think uh, it's Taiwan's about a, a the size of New Hampshire plus a half. Uh, and so, you know, you can put a lot of defenses on there. So, you know, man-made islands that China wants to create are terrifically vulnerable to U.S. countermeasures because they're so small. We can find all the all the radars and so forth on there. Taiwan can hide a lot of stuff. They can use the fact that it's mountainous. Taiwan's uh, mostly uh, mountainous uh, to hide uh, defensive uh, systems. Uh, you know, they can use cover. Uh, and amphibious landings are just really hard in modern military technologies, these A2AD systems that I'm talking about, which is really just the ability to marry a missile to a radar system and accurately target things. 
uh, are deadly for ships. They're deadly for ships because ships are big metal objects in the water uh, that you just can't really disguise. And then there's mines and other things that make amphibious landings hard. But uh, there's a reason why military, uh, why warfare has seen so few amphibious landings since the you know early part of the 20th century, and it's it's incredibly deadly. That doesn't mean they can't work. I mean, Normandy was deadly but successful, and uh, the Normandy invasion. And, and uh, I think you know the analysis I've seen says, look, the the people argue about this, but the Chinese can do it. Let's leave the United States out of it. If the United States doesn't fight for Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese will probably be able to take Taiwan. Uh, depends a lot on the assumptions you make, but uh, they'll take very heavy losses. Uh, they might, you know, depending on how hard the Taiwanese fight, the Chinese will hit them with a bunch of missiles. They'll try to knock everything down in Taiwan that can move or roll and uh, try to sap their will. Uh, but um, if they're motivated and if they do a decent job and have some warning from, from uh, intelligence, uh, then they should be able to have most of their defensive systems survive that initial missile onslaught. And then they can hurt the Chinese attackers badly because all those ships are vulnerable. And it sort of becomes a question of how many accurate accurate anti-ship missiles do you have uh, versus how many ships they have. They can hurt them badly. And if the Chinese try to use aircraft or helicopters to insert people, which some people think they'll do, they'll get hurt even worse because uh, you know then you're vulnerable to all kinds of ground fires. But it, there's a lot, you know, the PLA is really big. And you know, if they can use non-military uh, ships, which are inherently even more vulnerable, they can bring even more people across. And it's just sort of a question of how many people do you want to get killed uh, in the operation? And uh, if you want to get enough people killed, if the Chinese are willing to take, you know, 30% casualties, again, leaving out the United States participation, which complicates things, uh, they could do it. So, um, you know, I think the big question is uh, how motivated are the Chinese? How motivated are the Taiwanese to fight back? Uh, I mean, we know the Chinese are motivated, but are they motivated like taking 30% casualties level motivated? And uh, what do they expect about U.S. participation and how many submarines in particular can the United States get up uh, into the fight before it's over? And uh, can the Taiwanese hold the Chinese off long enough uh, for all these U.S. military assets, which are pretty far away, uh, to get into the fight and, and then really make a difference. And, you know, I think the ideal scenario for China is it's, you know, the, the Taiwanese get knocked down uh, and uh, it's all over so fast that, you know, only a few U.S. submarines get on scene to start knocking out Taiwanese, uh, Chinese shipping across the strait. Yeah, to to follow up on that, you know, I've been looking at uh, the the new book, uh, well, from last year by uh, Elbridge Colby called uh, "Strategy of Denial," which is basically about uh, this kind of problem, in particular, the defense of Taiwan, and he offers a fairly similar picture of you know what the uh, battlefield dynamics look like. But his whole argument, uh, at least as I read it, hinges on a particular assumption, namely that if Taiwan falls, uh, that this could lead to a kind of unraveling uh, of the U.S. alliance system in East Asia and really open the door for Chinese hegemony in Asia. You know, in particular, uh, you know, he's arguing that China's best strategy is to pick on individual separate states at one time, 
you know, rather than, you know, kind of going after everybody at once, that Taiwan is a really easy target that, uh, you know, a relatively easy target. And that, uh, you know, the other states in the region look to the U.S. commitment to Taiwan, even though it's not formalized as an alliance, as a bellwether uh, for the region. And that thereby, if Taiwan falls, uh, you know, that there's a that there's a severe danger of uh, Chinese hegemony in Asia, probably without even too much more fighting, because a lot of states would start to accommodate the Chinese. What do you make of that kind of argument? Uh, it, it's wrong. It's aggressively wrong. And uh, here's why. OK, so there's the sort of uh, political side of it and then there's the military side of it. They're linked, of course. But um, number one, uh, it would be even in a best case scenario for China, it would be expensive to pacify, to occupy and pacify Taiwan, at least for a while. They're going to have to bring in a lot of security forces into Taiwan to make sure there's not continued rebellion, uh, and that's going to be costly. It's very unlikely that, uh, from some sort of economic standpoint, that they're going to get more benefit out of sort of uh, taking over the Taiwanese economy, which they already trade heavily with, uh, than they do uh, than the cost of occupying it. So it's a losing, I think, at least in the short term, it's a heavily losing economic proposition. Of course, then there are the costs of the invasion itself, which could be hairy. Um, so uh, in that sense, it's not, it's more like an indigestion problem that China has than some sort of, you know, like an energy bar that kind of propels you into greater conquest. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's important to think about the way conquest works. We have these analogies from World War II in our mind, where you sort of take over the industry, and then you put it into military might, and then off you go. But uh, I don't think Taiwan would work that way. I think it would be, uh, at least in the short term, again, uh, difficult for China to occupy it. Um, more importantly, uh, the way Asian states would react to that would, I think, be balancing, not bandwagoning, uh, in the sense that they're more likely, and you already see some of this now with Australia and the AUKUS deal and other things, the more aggressive China is, conquering Taiwan would sure be a sign of aggression. Uh, I think the more uh, those countries are able, are likely to spend more on their militaries and particularly uh, the submarines and things like that that are best suited to dealing with China. And uh, they're even more likely to ally among themselves. Uh, you know, there's, it's a debate right now in Japan uh, whether or not they would help the United States and Taiwan in the event that China attacked them. I think it's unlikely, but it's possible. But uh, after China swallowed Taiwan, uh, you know, I think the Japanese uh, pacifism, such as it is, would take a hit, and they'd spend more in their military, and that would be a negative result for China, not positive. Uh, you know, the Australians would probably tie their arms uh, or link their arms more closely with Asian states. Uh, you'd see heavier military spending in places like probably the Philippines and Vietnam and, and, you know, some smattering of alliance type moves. So, but uh, the, I think the limits of the balancing would be uh, due to the fact that the military side of things, which is, I don't think Taiwan's worth that much to China uh, militarily. Um, I was just reading a paper about this today, the Mike Sweeney paper uh, I mentioned, I was editing it. Uh, and uh, he makes some good arguments in there, or he gets into detail about a few things. 
Uh, one of which is um, the biggest advantage that China would get from Taiwan is the radar systems they could put on there, uh, because then they could their A2AD systems, which are limited by the range of radar. It's a technical issue, but they're limited by the range of radar. It's four or five hundred kilometers could look out a little further. And that means they could target U.S. ships accurately a little further, U.S. aircraft. Uh, they could raise radars higher in the Taiwanese mountains and get a little further than that. Uh, and so that would help China. Uh, and there's a good port there, and they, they, you know, their submarines, their diesel submarines, uh, could, which have limited range, would have greater range as a result of uh, being based in Taiwan. But the bottom line is that none of that stuff would really get them very close to being able to conquer uh, Japan or even relevant parts of Japan. When when Chinese, even with Taiwan, when uh, Chinese military assets head out heading that way towards Japan or other places in the Pacific Ocean, they lose these home field advantages they have uh, from uh, A2AD systems. They get out of range of uh, the radars that allow them to uh, accurately target U.S. ships, and they get in range uh, sooner or later of uh, other people's radars that allow their ships to be accurately targeted. So uh, they uh, go from being the uh, defender who has these inherent geographic advantages to being the offensive party that uh, suffers uh, from defenders' advantages. And so that's why in this paper, um, this is a Eugene Galt's term that we use in the paper, uh, or actually it comes from other people. But anyway, no man's sea, the term is no man's sea. The uh, East and South China Sea should become, if the United States has something to do about it, uh, no man sees, and it's hard to go in either direction. So uh, th that I think would remain the case if China conquered uh, Taiwan. And so uh, as bad as that would be for uh, the people of Taiwan, all 23 million of them, I don't think it would make a great deal of difference to the balance of power across the Pacific Ocean. And in fact, because of the indigestion problems it might give China, it might actually aid the US side of the balance of power, the Asian allies side against China of the balance of power. Um, and you mentioned that you don't think Taiwan is a very, is not a lot of a military asset to uh, China. So I was wondering what exactly does their interest consist in because i think that probably tells us how much they're willing to give for it um right like is it historical like in the sense that it's a historical rivalry like is it economic what are the main interests that they would have in actually conquering taiwan well i'm not a uh, historian uh, let alone of uh, east asia i should say but uh yeah i don't i don't think china doesn't want taiwan because it's a great base for further power projection into East Asia. I mean, I'm sure they wouldn't mind that. Uh, and I, you know, it also may can interrupt shipping from there was the other part I didn't mention. But um, I mean, they could do that already from their coast, but they could do it in a more effective way from Taiwan. But um, they, they want it for historical cultural reasons, which is that they view it as part of their country. And, uh, you know, that that is the issue. Uh, between China and Taiwan that, you know, both sides, particularly China, say, you know, it's one China, we're it. And uh, they want to unify, uh, they view it as an outlaw province that they want to bring back into the fold. That's that's the issue. And, uh, you know, and I think it gets lost in uh, the, you know, the Graham Allison, Thucydides trap stuff, you know, rising power, 
you know, uh, you know, China's the rising power and the U.S. is the status quo power and John Mearsheimer's stuff that says China's bound for, uh, you know, to try to become a regional hegemon. I don't think they have uh, a great desire to go other places in terms of being politically dominant, let alone conquest. Um, and they want to assert themselves more. That's clear. But uh, and uh, that is consistent with their growing power. But uh, I, I don't think they're bound for regional hegemony in the sense of conquest, like some Napoleonic binge. I don't see that. I think that, you know, they want Taiwan. And, and I think it, it's I, I, we don't need to have a new Cold War if we can find a way of muddling through vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan. That's the thing. It's not about, you know, I don't think it's about relative GDPs. I think it's more, more or less about, largely about at least Taiwan. And uh, a bit like in the beginning of the Cold War, where um, the real issue was Germany and how Germany uh, would function in Europe and the Soviets' fears of what would happen if Germany rearmed, particularly if it got nuclear weapons. That, that was the, mo the, the driving force of the Cold War early on. And of course, later China and Asia got involved, but uh, it wasn't necessarily that there were these two big powers. And to the extent it was, it was largely because of the geography of uh, Europe that made it much harder to uh, avoid security dilemma type dynamics and uh, pacify relations. Whereas in Asia, East Asia, you know, Robert Ross said, uh, Asia, uh, who's a professor at BC, said, Asia has a geography of peace. And that's true, you know, because Taiwan is too close to uh, to China for its own good, but it's still got these 100 kilometers of water between it and China. That makes it harder for China to invade Taiwan. And that's good for defense, which is good for peace. Uh, and uh, Japan is far away. It's good for defense, good for peace. On the, in the other direction, you got... Uh, mountains and the Himalayan mountains between China and India. And that's good for pacifying relations, although obviously with some clashes, it doesn't totally do the trick. And uh, you have uh, Russia over there with nuclear weapons. So uh, I, you know, I'm, I want to argue with John Mearsheimer more and say, where exactly do you think they're going, China? Beyond Taiwan, I see that. But uh, where are they heading beyond that? I don't think anywhere. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned Europe and the contrast between Europe and Asia, and that kind of gets to something that I that I always think about. Uh, you know, because I, I agree with your assessment uh, that hey, defense you know defense is dominant in a lot of these situations, and it seems like a lot of the technological trends uh, are amplifying that. Uh, but I keep thinking back to uh, you know 1940 where. You know, it sure seemed like defense was dominant. The most recent big war, uh, you know, in World War One, uh, had seen defense heavily dominant in Europe, and you know, the two sides had really struggled to to break through each other. Uh, and then the French, you know, kind of built their war plan somewhat around that, and ended up being deadly wrong and collapsing uh, as a power, throwing off the entire balance of Europe. Uh, and so I, I always wonder, like, how confident can we be uh, in in our assessments of offense defense balance, uh, given that the costs, at least in that case, were pretty high? Yeah. And I mean, there is this whole school of thought, which uh, comes from the University of Chicago. You know, John Mearsheimer's sort of famously skeptical about the utility of offense defense theory and uh, his student Kier Lieber, who's now, you know, for a long time, a professor at Georgetown wrote a whole book uh, 
uh, about uh, how uh, offense defense theory is wrong and you largely saying what you said that, you know, we think we have one read on it and uh, we turn out to be wrong. And I guess, you know, there's a lot to say about that, but one thing is uh, I think, uh, you know, the technological side of it is the hardest to call and uh, it's the hardest to call across land, but the, the, um, the geography aiding the defender, I think is, a pretty historically empirically sound thing. And the difficulty that I mentioned already of amphibious assaults is something we have a lot of evidence of, although, you know, like I said, people don't do it lately, I think because it's so deadly. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can look at, I mean, you know, we don't, there aren't that many interstate wars happily for us to collect a lot of uh, good historical precedents on this lately. Uh, but, you know, there, there are, uh, amphibious landings in the past, and we can look at the accuracy of uh, missile systems and say, cruise missile can hit a ship pretty easily. I mean, that, you know, a lot more and more states have the ability to do that. So if you've got a bunch of ships coming across the water, you count the cruise missiles that are aimed at your ship, and uh, you know, at least the cruise missiles left after you do your air assault, and uh, those are probably going to hit your ships. I mean, there's a good chance if it's a halfway capable. Uh, military ballistic missiles uh, more difficult at hitting a moving target for various reasons, but um, and you know everybody talks about China's ballistic missiles uh, DF twenty one DF twenty six, but I think you know the it's the accuracy of those against moving targets against ships is uh, still a, a question. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I mean you know it's possible we could be wrong, but the other thing is, uh, well, I mean, what's the alternative? You know, uh, like figure out a really offensive uh, military posture uh, against China. I mean, that seems, uh, it's a whole nother conversation, but that seems basically infeasible to me. So, uh, you know, shoring up the defenses of our allies, uh, you know, seems like a pretty safe way to invest money, even if, you know, we don't have a perfect read on the, on the technology, right? Largely because, you know, in the United States, um, it doesn't have to be our fight. So, you know, I think we should limit our liability in a way. It doesn't mean abandoning our allies entirely, although, you know, I think we should be, that should always be under consideration. It's not because it's politically impossible, but, um, you know, we, we uh, ought to limit our risk and sort of say, look, even if China attacks somebody, you know, we don't, let's, you know, limit the chances that this winds up being World War III. That seems like a good policy to me. Um, I'm going to work in a few of uh, questions from the audience here. Uh, Ethan uh, says, given the defense dominance of amphibious situations like Taiwan, how comfortable can the U.S. be that China will effectively telegraph its move on Taiwan before beforehand by ramping up ship production and moving defense articles to the area of the mainland across the strait? It seems they have to throw so much metal and so many bodies at Taiwan that we would be able to pick up some signals with confidence. I think so. I, I think that the warning will be good. Not everybody agrees. Uh, and, uh, you know, with regard to a missile salvo, uh, you're going to have less warning. I mean, you know, the United States is early warning uh, radar, uh, satellites that will pick up launches, but that only gives you uh, however long it takes a missile to go 100 kilometers. So, uh, that, you know, that that's not very long. That's like minutes, not hours, not days. Uh, but uh the question is i guess is uh the chinese just you know do a bolt from the blue missile strike and then pull their uh amphibious 
their shipping together uh, after that. And I, I kind of think that's unlikely. And I also think it's unlikely that they will just attack Taiwan, a bolt from the blue, without some kind of crisis or, you know, a series of uh, an escalating political crisis, sort of like what we see now with Ukraine. Uh, and, and that's a judgment that could be wrong. But uh, yeah, I think there'll be uh, sort of political warning uh, and uh, at least some logistical moves that should allow uh, the Taiwanese to, you know, sort of button down the hatches a bit, uh, you know, whether or not that does them enough good to make a difference. I don't know. But yeah, I think they should have warning. So we've got another question. And by the way, for those of you listening in, we've got the Q&A feature down at the bottom of your screen. Feel free to ask questions yourself or to upvote questions uh, from others that you'd like to see answered. I'm going to turn to one from Jake Rotter, who asks, if action were to be taken against Taiwan, what do you view as the natural next steps from the U.S. point of view were we to act based on our current posture? And how strongly would those actions rely on U.S., ROK, Japan, trilateral uh, trilateralism? Well, um, I mean, I think our current posture is strategic ambiguity. So the whole point is that we can't really say, are we going to fight or not? Uh, um, so it's a bit of a dead end saying, what are we going to do based on our current posture? That being said, what do I think we would do? I think we would not fight. Uh, you know, who knows for sure, uh, you know, there would be a, or, or a heavy debate in the Biden administration in the United States in that event. But if I were president, I'd say I didn't want to go to war with China over Taiwan. I like Taiwan. I wish it all the best. But at the end of the day, uh, we're not we're not going to fight. The reason being partly that it could escalate to a nuclear war. You know, this all takes place in the shadow of nuclear weapons. China has a secure second strike capability. Uh, they seem eager, by the way, to make sure they they really do, or that at least they've convinced even the most hawkish people in the United States they do with the nuclear buildup. Uh, this, you know, they're building hundreds of new nuclear weapons uh, for some reason. ICBMs, uh, which are in silo, they're building all these silos, which we think they'll fill with nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, yeah, so. Um, I guess that that's my answer. Um, another question um, from the audience based upon this side, this uh, problem of Taiwan, uh, Stuart asked, how would Taiwan respond to Chinese attempts at invading one or more of its outlying islands? Would this serve any strategic purpose for China? Um, how would or should the US respond to this type of Chinese strategy? I should say, I, you know, I meant to answer the other part of the question. It sort of lost my train of thought. Uh, so let me come back to that. But um, allies, what, you know, what would we do? Uh, what would Korea and Japan do? I, like I said before about the Japan, it's an open question. I, I think it's more likely that the Australians would try to get into the fight than Japan. Uh, but uh, at least if we're projecting out into the future a little bit. Uh, you know, those submarines they ordered from us aren't going to be ready for a long time. But they're on the other hand, they're very far away. So, uh, you know, Australia uh, is a different continent. I think uh, uh, Sydney's almost as far from uh, the Chinese coast or from Taiwan as London. You know, it's around similar distances. So it's not like it's around the corner. Uh, and uh, the, anyway, so uh, I don't think anybody, I don't think Taiwan can really count on anybody coming to their defense in the event that China attacks them. They, they sure want to count on us. And I think that's the best option but like i already said you know it's uh it's it seems 
Unlikely. And, and by the way, you know, I think having a little less confidence uh, that will come to their defense uh, might help spur them uh, to do some of the, you know, more aggressive uh, measures that will ultimately make them more secure. Uh, you know, if they're a little more frightened that the United States is not uh, actually in their corner, that they have to consider that it's it's analogous in a way, I think, to Ukraine, which has relied on uh, U.S. promises or vague U.S. promises or hints of future U.S. promises to its detriment. But anyway, uh, I don't. I don't. I'm, if China takes outlying islands of uh, Taiwan, uh, I think it will open itself up to uh, taking a lot of hits from uh, Taiwanese defense systems and potentially U.S. defense systems without actually taking Taiwan proper. Uh, so I don't think there's really a good uh, argument to be made for an island hopping campaign because I haven't studied the geography closely, but I don't think, uh, you know, they even take the outlying territories without getting into the thick of the defensive systems that Taiwan has. And thus you're gonna be running all the risks and incurring a lot of the costs of an amphibious assault without taking the main goal. So uh, that doesn't seem like a great strategy to me off the top of my head, but I, I should admit that I haven't studied it closely. Uh, another question, uh, this is from Ryan Burkhaw, uh, who says, Japan is almost entirely dependent upon trade flows in the Taiwan and Luzon Straits. Chinese control over Taiwan would afford it disproportionate leverage over Tokyo. It has long been theorized that China's ideal scenario involves Finlandizing Japan, and Chinese officer training manuals even support this theory. Doesn't this make Japanese involvement in, in a Taiwan contingency a matter of strategic necessity for them? No, uh, I, I don't agree that that uh, they would have that much leverage over over shipping uh, in the event they they took Taiwan. I think they would have more uh, ability to disrupt shipping, but uh, you know, a lot of it comes down to where. Uh, shipping between Japan and and uh, its trade partners go. I mean, most of the J Japanese shipping that would be in those waters would be headed to China. And uh, I mean, are we gonna, are they going to be holding their own shipping hostage uh, to screw with Japan? They don't need to sink it to do that. So uh, I, anyway, I, I'm not convinced that they they can uh, threaten Japan into being Finlandized. And you know, more importantly, Japan is very defensible against China because it's far enough away. Uh, and has enough military capability when it comes down to it that uh, Chinese military get absolutely chewed up if it ever tried to invade Japan. There's not very much controversy about that. I mean, the United States invests a great deal of money in defending Japan, and yet uh, I don't really know anyone who thinks Japan, uh, China has a real fighting chance of conquering uh, Japan. They can maybe screw with uh, you know contested goat islands and things like maybe Okinawa, which is uh, very well popular, but it's full of U.S. troops, so that would be a bad idea for them. So, you know, the the, the Japan is in pretty good shape, I think, vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. And uh, if China, uh, you know, went after its shipping, it would be, you know, I'm sure they could do some damage to uh, uh, Japanese uh, the Japanese economy. But I, I don't I, I don't think it's a really good read on Japan. Uh, I'm not again a Japan expert to say that they would uh, sort of tuck their tails between their leg, their legs, tuck their tail between their legs and sort of say, OK, we agree to be Finlandized. But why and why, by the way, I mean, this I don't I find it um, 
hard to see why China would want to Finlandize Japan. They have a lot of historical animosity between them, but what exactly would they get out of that? I don't, I don't really see it. They trade with them now. They do okay that way. Uh, I don't see really any indication whatsoever that China wants to conquer Japan. They have a kind of, you know, cultural security dilemma going on where they have a lot of animus, but conquest, I don't, I don't see. And Finlandization, it's a little unclear to me what the, it's not like Ukraine and Russia East or Taiwan. I mean, Finlandizing Taiwan, sure, I could see that, but uh, it's a different kettle of fish with Japan. Uh, Jake has another question based upon uh, Chinese and their head and like a hegemony, a Chinese hegemony. He says, um, what purposes do you view the Belt and Road Initiative to serve? Um, do you think that the Belt and Road Initiative is a success at present or its efforts um, remain or the success of which remains to be seen? Well, I mean, I, there are different ways of judging the success of the Belt and Road Initiative, one of which is influence. The other one is, I mean, they're making loans, right? There's a financial component to it and uh, whether or not, you know, it's profitable uh, in the sense of getting return on investment in a literal sense, I think it remains to be seen. There's reason to think that they're making bad loans uh, that will not be uh, profitable to them. There's uh, a small literature developing about Chinese debt traps and this idea that, you know, they, they get these countries like Sri Lanka into these situations where they have to hand over property to the Chinese. And I think there's good reason to be skeptical um, that uh, debt traps are really, you know, what the Chinese think they're doing and, and uh, a likely scenario for many countries where they wind up sort of, you know, as servants of China because of their debt. Uh, but I, generally, my view of the Belt and Road Initiative is that uh, the Chinese economy has grown by leaps and bounds. They have a lot of cash, and uh, it's not uh, necessarily – it shouldn't be alarming to us that they want to invest it in their own uh, near abroad, in their neighborhood for uh, economic development. I mean, um, I, I suppose it's preferable that they make a bunch of sort of dubious loans to – uh, developing nations in their periphery rather than just plowing it all into the PLA and uh, buying all the amphibious ships for whatever reason they haven't bought to conquer Taiwan, buying more aircraft carriers to go menace Japan, like we were talking about. Uh, so, um, I, you know, I, I, I think uh, a lot of there's a lot of bad ideas about Chinese economic investment floating around. Uh, and they're predicated on the idea that we're in some sort of global security struggle with China, where uh, them gaining some degree of influence in developing countries comes at our expense. And I think that's just fundamentally wrong. And uh, as it was the case in the Cold War, it really didn't matter in the Cold War to U.S. security if the Soviets uh, had good relations or advisors or something in uh, Angola or in uh, other parts of the third world, just as it doesn't really matter very much from the standpoint of U.S. security right now, if Russia uh, has troops in Syria, it's not a prize that makes it easier for them to conquer parts of the Middle East that have a lot of oil in them and thus, you know, make them into a bigger economic behemoth. No, it's a place with a civil war, very little oil, 
And, uh, you know, it's a, it's more of a uh, detriment than a, something that's going to be, you know, help you bound to geopolitical glory. And uh, the same goes for most of the places China's uh, investing money in the Belt and Road. But, uh, you know, the, the Chinese investments uh, don't necessarily inhibit U.S. security, even in more profitable places, because we have nuclear weapons and a big military and uh, are, we're sort of inherently secure in the United States. We don't need to fuss with a kind of global Cold War in the developing world. There may be other reasons to do it, but um, the argument that we're in a global security competition with China really, uh, I think, bears little scrutiny. So we've got a question from Sarah Caldwell, who asks, if the United States doesn't defend Taiwan, won't that damage their reputation with other countries in the region? Well, um, to the extent they view themselves as analogous with Taiwan, yes, but they ought not to. I mean, we have no treaty alliance commitment to defend Taiwan. We have a policy of strategic ambiguity uh, where we say we might defend them, and we have committed through the Taiwan Relations Act to help them acquire weapons to defend themselves. But that's very different than uh, the agreement we have uh, through treaties. Uh, with Japan and with Australia, with South Korea, we say uh, in the event of an attack on your territory, we will help you militarily, like the NATO Treaty, Article 5. It's not like that. So uh, it would be odd if uh, Japan said uh, we're just like Taiwan. I mean, I would it make them, uh, it wouldn't fill them with joy if the United States sat on its hands while China took Taiwan. They might get a little nervous. They might spend more money on defense as a result. But I don't think it would be sensible to read into it that the United States wouldn't defend them. The, the, you know, Daryl Press's book about calculating credibility, I think, to me, is kind of the gold standard to think about this issue. There's a lot of good writing about credibility, most of it attacking the way people think about credibility in Washington. And Press's argument is that uh, what makes threats credible? Uh, deterrent threats, extended deterrence, or any threats? Well, it's interest and capability. Do we have an interest in fighting and do we have the capability to act on it? Um, if uh, Japan thinks that we don't have an interest in fighting for them, then they should worry. But uh, what we do vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan uh, shouldn't really impact that very much unless they think uh, Taiwan's just like them. And so if we don't fight for Taiwan, that means, oh, they must not have an interest in fighting for us. And as I already discussed, you know, our capabilities to defend uh, Japan are much more robust that our capabilities to defend Taiwan because we don't have to go into the teeth of Chinese defensive systems on their coast to defend uh, Japan. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that uh, our deterrent threats will uh, be very negatively affected if we don't defend Taiwan. And uh, another question from the audience on that idea of deterrence. He says, if China has a limited desire or limited opportunity to be an expansionist power, this is from Steve, what then is the metric for measuring the effectiveness of our deterrence? Is it only preventing an attack on Taiwan, deterring them from island expansion in the South China Sea or something else? Well, uh, I don't know what the metric. I mean, it's, yeah, there's measuring the success of deterrence is really hard, so hard that uh, political science fought about it for years um, in a series of articles I had to read, read in uh, graduate school. Um, and uh, the bottom line is it's really hard, yeah, because most of the time it appears that you're succeeding because wars are very rare. 
And, uh, you know, we tend to make deterrent commitments to states that have pretty good outlooks to begin with. So uh, our deterrent threats are unlikely to be tested. So it's very hard uh, and uh, metrics are difficult. Clearly, uh, you know, if, 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 um, if China were to, you know, just decide that it wants to go attack a bunch of U.S. allies, uh, that would be a failure. But uh, success is a little harder harder to judge. And uh, but the bottom line that it gets to for me is that deterrence in Asia, because it has, as I said, a geography of peace, because defenders have major advantages, uh, which modern technologies in terms of uh, radar and accurate missiles are only improving. Uh, deterrence is not brittle. Deterrence is not failing uh, because uh, it's not that hard. And add to that that uh, I think beyond Taiwan, beyond Taiwan, which is a very important exception, beyond Taiwan, uh, I don't think China has that many offensive uh, aims. Uh, so um, our deterrence is is in some ways overkill. Um, that, that you know, there, there's some inherent stability baked into the equation in China. I'm sorry, in Asia, uh, that these questions of is deterrence working or not uh, ignore, and, and that's why you know I think that there's a sort of a cult of deterrence failure in Washington because it's it's sort of boring, you know, to say for 40 years in the Cold War. You know, actually, the truth is that the Soviets are pretty well deterred by uh, NATO and U.S. nuclear weapons. Uh, and, yeah, sure, they'd love to, you know, reincorporate uh, parts of uh, or incorporate parts of uh, Eastern Europe and, and um, further afield. But uh, they're not about to risk World War III for it. So uh, you can go back to sleep, essentially. And that was, I, that's, I think, was essentially what happened after, like, the mid-60s. The Cold War was very stable. You know, we were arguing about uh, arms control and all these things, but the chances of an actual war happening uh, were very low. And uh, sadly, for a lot of people who are in the security studies business, the chances of an all-out war between the United States and China, even with Taiwan making it way more likely, remain very low because there's mutually assured destruction from nuclear weapons. So, uh yeah, it's great news, ultimately, that deterrence isn't so brittle. It's not that hard to deter states in the, in the modern era, particularly if you're the United States. So related to that earlier, uh, you'd mentioned strategic ambiguity, you know, that we don't really make it clear whether we would go to war with China if China would attack Taiwan. And that that policy has come under increasing criticism, you know, essentially arguing that because China has more of an ability to threaten Taiwan than it did before, and more of an ability to impose costs on a U.S. military effort to support Taiwan than before, that the United States should explicitly declare uh, its intention to defend Taiwan and thereby end strategic ambiguity. What do you think about that? Uh, I, I think, number one, you have Richard Haas wrote that, who's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and others. I, I think, number one, um, as uh, my former uh, graduate school buddy Josh Rovner wrote, in I think it was in War on the Rocks, strategic ambiguity is a fact more than a policy. In that, uh, you know, I think it's strategically ambiguous whether or not the United States would defend Lithuania, for example, which is a NATO ally 
sadly, in terms of its indefensibility, but it's a NATO ally. So uh, the United States is on paper committed to defend it. But would we really, if uh, Russia decided to roll into Lithuania, would we decide we're going to start, you know, World War III potentially goes nuclear for Lithuania? I don't know. I think it's a little ambiguous. I probably wouldn't if I was president. So um, likewise, you know, even if the United States says it's going to defend Taiwan, China might not really believe us. And uh even if we say we're not going to defend Taiwan, they might not fully believe us. They might think, well, the next president might be um, Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo, and then you know you guys might rush back into the into into defending Taiwan. So um, yeah, it's, it's uh, ambiguity is kind of hard to get rid of, uh, regardless of your declaratory policy. I think the danger of strategic clarity, as people like to put it, uh, is that. Um, well, I, I suppose it would make it a little more likely in China's head that we would actually defend Taiwan. They might say, you know what, let's nip this in the bud. And before the United States can make its commitment, its now clear commitment to defend Taiwan manifest, uh, we're going to go. We're going to attack. I, you know, to me, it's analogous to um, if the United States ever really said we were going to put Ukraine in NATO, like, it was announced that we're for real going to put Ukraine in NATO or Ukraine is in NATO, you know, su surprise vote somehow Ukraine's in NATO. I think Russia would attack at least more likely Russia would attack them the next day before we could defend it. And they would attempt to fait accompli and say, OK, you know, before you can you know, make it likely uh, that, that we actually can't take Ukraine, we're going to take the peace off the board. And you could see something similar, I think, happen with Taiwan. That's the danger, at least. Yeah, and I just had a question about essentially, obviously, China in the past 20 years or whatever has obviously gone from some uh, a nation that doesn't really pose any significant uh, threats to United States or anybody around them to obviously immense mil both military and economic growth. Do you think that? The, those past 20 years are, is a trend that will continue as far as their military strength and, and innovation. I mean, recently they had that um, hypersonic missile test. And do you think that like there's dangers of their like, do you think that their military is on a trend and their economic and military strength is on it's on its trend continually up? Um, or do you think that it's more likely to plateau, I guess? I don't know. Yeah, funny. well, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to be a bit cowardly and just say for, for starters, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't, predicting the future is hard or making predictions hard, especially about the future. Who said that Yogi Bear or somebody? Um, so uh, I don't know, but uh, look, like Chinese economic growth, it's driven by taking a very large number of people out of uh the countryside and putting them into uh, much more productive and, you know, an economic sense. I don't know if they all feel that way, much more productive economic uses, generating wealth creation and, and GDP growth uh, of the like of which the world has never seen. And uh, they can't pull that trick forever uh, because they run out of people. So, uh, and their growth has been slowing down from sort of Herculean, like 9% a year, uh, levels or whatever it was a few years ago to more pedestrian levels, which are still growing fast. Um, and I think, you know, that's likely to continue that you know, the pace of growth will slow as they become a more 
mature economy and, and they've always spent around, I think, 2% of GDP on defense. It's just that their GDP keeps growing. So their defense budget keeps growing. So uh, that means that the pace of growth of their military budget will slow down, even though it will continue to grow. Uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, you know, it's things are likely to normalize a bit, but uh, it's still going to be growing and uh, they're still going to overtake the United States most likely in terms of uh, GDP. I mean, maybe their financial sector will collapse. And, you know, I mean, I've been hearing about all the bad debt in China for a long time, and I don't profess to be an expert on that. But yeah, I mean, maybe they'll have some sort of financial meltdown. I, I don't know, but hasn't happened yet. So uh, I think it's more likely than not that they'll overtake us in terms of GDP. And uh, at least for a while there before their population problems catch up to them. And uh, They'll be the behemoth in Asia, but uh, for reasons I already explained, I don't think that means uh, that they uh, will have the ability to go take over in a in a direct uh, territorial sense uh, a big swath of Asia. I don't think they'll take over hardly any of it besides Taiwan, uh, which they're very clear about wanting. Uh, and uh, I think that that's good news. the The world is not. Uh, and Asia is not one that uh, makes it likely that uh, they're going to sort of, you know, do the old, as I said already, Napoleonic kind of, let's just go for broke here, the kind of Hitler uh, run it, you know, Eurasian hegemony that, that we're taught to think everybody just kind of does if they get enough power. I think there's reasons to think that's not going to happen. So we've got time for one more question, which I'll go ahead and uh, and ask it. Uh, you know, one of the arguments that floats around out there is that uh, the Taiwanese semiconductor industry uh, either is a reason that the United States should defend Taiwan, uh, or uh, you'll also hear arguments that in the event of an attack on Taiwan, uh, the Taiwanese should tell the Chinese, we are going to destroy our semiconductor industry so that Taiwan would be worthless uh, to China uh, from that from that perspective. What do you make of those kinds of arguments about the role that the Taiwanese semiconductor industry plays in this? Well, um, a good way for the United States to revive its domestic semiconductor industries for China to conquer Taiwan and uh, try to subsume that semiconductor industry because there's a lot of energy in the United States that wants to decouple. We haven't really done much of it, but you know, people talk about decoupling all the time and there's a lot of economic nationalism and it would be nice to have all those semiconductor jobs back. So I generally think, you know, it'd be hard uh, to build up an industry, but we would. And uh, I, Eugene Galtz has a lot of good uh, writing on this issue, uh, the general issue of strategic industries. And the bottom line is that I think economies are much more flexible and adjustable uh, than is the sort of conventional wisdom. And, uh, you know, we there might be a problem. I'm not saying there wouldn't be, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must semiconductor wise, but uh, I think that markets would adjust and we would still have semiconductors. Uh, and we would still have all the nice technologies we have. Prices might go up and there might be a backlog for a little bit. But um, the idea that uh, was expressed, uh, and there was an article recently that came out in Parameters, and one of the articles is Peter Harris, who's a, a visiting, a non, he's a non-resident fellow at Defense Priorities, so I pulled this to him. Uh, I don't think it makes any sense 
that they would blow up their semiconductor industry for a couple different reasons. Uh, well, first of all, it wouldn't stop China from invading them, the threat to do that, because I think that China, as I said, wants Taiwan for historical cultural reasons. And sure, they would like the semiconductor industry intact when they get there. Uh, but uh, I don't think it would be the thing that makes a difference in whether or not they uh, attack Taiwan. Uh, besides that, I think the semiconductor industry has a lot of expensive uh, physical capital tied up in it. And that's why people get the idea that you can just blow it up. But the truth is that like most modern industries, the real value in that industry is in people's heads and the engineers uh, and the people who know how to order components and uh, in the sort of uh, knowledge base that allows this group of individuals to build technology and make semiconductors with that technology and then sell them. And uh, you cannot blow up that knowledge unless you feel like murdering a lot of engineers, which I haven't heard people propose. So uh, that that's another reason why I just don't think uh, that makes sense. I think, you know, if you want to get creative and think about uh, other ways that we could sort of do economic deterrence by punishment, I guess that's a term of art. You could take advantage of all this um, energy in the United States to decouple and say, in the event that China conquers Taiwan, uh, we, the United States Congress say, here's a law, will buy, it will be illegal to buy semiconductors from that island. These, that will be, that will be illegal. Uh, and so then, you know, I, again, I don't think that will stop China, but it will at least be like a, a couple pounds on the scale that will make it a little less likely that they think this will pay off. And uh, you can invest money and in sort of trying to, you know, move towards like sort of the preliminary steps in, in ramping up our, our semiconductor industry here. But I don't think that will work. But uh, it seems a lot more realistic to me than just saying we're going to blow up their industry physically or they'll blow it up. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. Thank you very much to Ben Friedman of Defense Priorities and to Josiah Mill and our chapter at the King's College. Uh, we'll be back this time next week with Emma Ashford talking about the Ukraine crisis, uh, which hopefully won't have gotten much worse uh, in the interim. But thank you all and have a wonderful evening. Thank you.